0: Important question of your day. Hey, this this been Emo? Hello, and welcome to episode 168 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome a legend, Guy Pachotto from Rice of Spring and Fugazi. You may also know him from Happy Go Licky or One Last Wish or insert another obscure band to tweet at me later. In my years of doing the podcast, I never expected to have such legends of the genre. I'm glad I waited because he speaks about his feelings about the word emo and how it's changed over the years. It was really eye-opening and I wasn't expecting him to expound on that as much as he did. Definitely stick around for that. Now, Rites of Spring were only around for a couple years, but are still mentioned when referring to this genre. As the word Morrison changes, Rites of Spring are the big bang of emo worth mentioning to this day. He was so eloquent and thoughtful in his responses, and since we did this interview at my day job, Atlantic Records, we start the podcast discussing Gazig's experience back in the day when they were recorded by Atlantic. Thank you all the Patreon supporters out there. If you want to help make this podcast easier to produce, head on over to patreon.com slash I cannot believe I get to say this right now, but here we go. This is episode 168 of the Washed Up Nemo podcast with Guy Pachoto from Rites of Spring and Fugazi. Thank you, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Tom. Ian told me this. You should. He said you have to announce yourself, your name, mm-hmm. pronounce your name, and say where you are.
1: Okay. My name is Guy Picciotto. I am here at 1633 Broadway. Am I yep. allowed to disclose your yes. hidden address of your <laughs> compound? Of <my> work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and the date is Fill me in, Tom. What is the date it's today? It's December 17th. There we go. Right before Christmas. December 17th. At about 4.30 with the
0: sun already down. Know, right? Yeah, Yes.
1: <laughs> winter time
0: i thought it was fitting too to start like the last time i mean we're in atlantic and there's a the great story that mm. ahmet was interested in your band a long time ago that
1: is correct yes it is strange to be here because we never actually we met him but we never had a meeting with him or came down to this uh, building so yeah it's interesting to be here um i guess the, the famous story is we were playing in uh doing a stand at Roseland here in New York, and we were playing with a, an Atlantic band opening for us, Jawbox, um, uh, who had been a Discord band who had signed to Atlantic, so um, we did the gig after the show, we were just down in our dressing room, and there was this odd thing where there was none of our friends were backstage, there was nobody backstage except the four of us in the room, and we were like, what's going on, you know, and right. security had basically blocked off the entire backstage. And the door opens as we're like changing out of our sweaty clothes, and in walks Ahmed Erdogan with uh, with a companion of his, and um, we thought he, you know. recognized him or whatever and we were like thought he must be looking for jaw box we didn't know what was going on necessarily and uh so i guess he had he had effectively had the security you know block off the zone so he could make his entrance and make a pitch to us and it was like it was a total dawn move i mean it was like very heavy um and we were like it was a weird period where we had never i think we had one label contact us very early in the game someone from electra came and I just kept talking about television to him or whatever, and, I, and the, we never had a, he came to see us at Maxwell's, and we never, that never, that was the only time, but after a while, everyone, the word was out that we weren't interested in signing, so no one ever approached us. We never had any feelers or offers, right. even when the big explosion happened. So the, yeah, this had to be well past the whole Nirvana thing, because um, there had already been this feeding frenzy and stuff like that, which, you know, just avoided us entirely. Nobody ever asked us anything, so... It was surprising to have such a power move play because it just was totally not the thing, anything that would normally happen to us. Um, I have to say he was very, very charming and interesting. And he, you know, he had had roots in D.C. You know, I think he had some affiliation from growing up through his father, living in Washington, the jazz scene and all these things. So there was much to talk about. And I wish ultimately that we'd had more time to, to just discuss music history and stuff with him. But as it was, he wanted to make a pitch and he made the pitch and... The pitch was was extremely intense it was like i'll give you what i gave the rolling stones you have your own label you manage your own label i don't want to interfere you have your own run of the whole thing and you know large sums of money were discussed all that kind of thing it was a very very intense pitch and i don't remember saying anything but i remember ian saying like you know as the owner of my own label why would i give anything to you you know like which was basically you know just you know you know from businessman to businessman he was like why would i do this but fundamentally it just was never going to be something that we were interested in doing and had you know it wasn't even something that we needed to like you know, give us a sec to talk as a band like we were all on the same page about what we were doing and so we politely you know declined there and then and you know um and that was it I, i don't know if there was a second reach out to Ian or if there was more discussion but i think we were kind of like you know you know think we were very polite about it i think you know because it was so kind of shocking the whole thing but it was um it was uh it was interesting and that was like the that was the effectively the last pitch the band ever received from anybody i think that if word got out if people knew they they knew that no one was going to make a better offer than that that was about as good an offer as any human being on the planet earth who was an independent band could possibly have hoped for that wasn't you know actually the rolling Stones. so that's it and then for ahmet to do that and want to take a shot and yeah it, i i kind of like that he's like all right I'll, i mean I'll, i don't I'll know see. honestly if he even watched us or if he actually really? knew us or liked our music i seriously doubt it i mean i would you know it'd be nice to think that he was like you know uh, this is a quality group and i like this music i that seems extremely far-fetched but i don't know
0: do you think it was that was it the post grunge like we got to find more of these underground bands. I
1: think it was more white whaleish, where it was like right. people just knew that if they signed us, it would be such a fucking coup that it would be. So I think it's probably more like that. Like, um, but I don't know. You know, I don't really know. There may have been, maybe there were some people underneath him that were actually were interested in the band in some kind of a legitimate way. I literally have no idea. I've never heard. Maybe you have a better. I haven't heard stories when I've asked. I not historical lore here about it, but I kind of doubt it. But I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It's more of just
0: that they knew that that pitch happened. Yes, and that you know yeah. he had he had gone down to the show. And
1: I mean, the thing about the hutzpah, what he his move was the thing that I really remember the most. Like for someone to come in at someone else's show, shut down the backstage, <laughs> and then enter their dressing room without knocking it was just like, whoa! This is like you know, you know, it was it was really something. It was really it was really really something. But he got impatient because I remember we started kind of peppering him with a few kind of like, you know, history questions and stuff like that. And he was a little impatient to get to the like actual reason for him why he was there. (laughs) So it was kind of like I think we were at cross purposes or whatever. But um, but, you know, it's it's at the time it was kind of just humorous. But as more time goes by, it seems kind of more and more bizarre that it actually happened, you know. From an indie band like
0: that, that yeah. those ethos and that ethic, like yeah. you would think, what 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 could be offered? You, I mean, Ian's question was totally right.
1: But you know, in a lot of ways, a lot of that era felt. Even playing in Roseland, frankly, ha, was th- of that feeling to me. It's like you there was you know, Roseland. I don't think is here anymore. No, it's not. I love it was that a venue, famous dance venue. So they had a, a wall of shoes from all the famous dancers that had been there in the mm-hmm. past, and we're talking, you know. I don't know if Gene Kelly shoes there, but, you know, people, I was a, you know, huge Gene Kelly fan as a, as a young person and stuff. So to the idea that we were headlining this room or that we were somehow in this like history of playing these rooms. And at that stage, we were playing a lot of theaters around the country and you'd be like, Oh, this is where Houdini died. And you'd have, you know, all these links to these weird entertainment history that, you know, for a band that was not particularly, you know, an entertainment vehicle or whatever, it just was a very interesting kind of, thing to suddenly find yourself in this like uh, weird slipstream of, of, of history so, did you feel it at the show like at Roseland
0: like I would sometimes be there and think about yeah. that and be I like, did
1: that day because I saw the wall of shoes in the right. lobby and I just and a lot of times the, some of these beautiful theaters I would think about it because you're like geez this is like stunning what this looks like and you start hearing the pedigree of the, the people who right. played there in the 70s and 60s and onward
0: back and, or the like the energy even like did you feel? Someone, I'm not saying spiritually, but like they're oh. still in there. Like that, like yes. the
1: yeah, I know what you're talking about. I didn't Roseland was weird because it was actually quite a difficult venue to play really loud rock music in. And it, but but a lot of those theaters were designed for yeah, it was it was not an easy show for us. Um, there is, I think, in our film instrument, there's like a clip of us doing some stuff there. And yeah, uh, I think Glue Man maybe is from there, but um, it's it's interesting, it was it was not an easy gig in that sense but some rock rooms or some theaters really lent them like the ones with the really nice wooden stages and stuff and when you really feel like wow this is like you know that's when you would yeah feel the spirit of the room and like
0: channel it or somehow like it's in the wood it's in the it's in like going to the Ryman or something in Nashville like you feel that yeah um I think that's true yeah so you did you grew up in DC I did yeah and the landscape of that place. I, I had some friends that I think I, I might have mentioned this when I saw you last. A f- friend in college, his brother was in Chisel, the band that was oh, on yeah. Gurn, and I recorded so, them in my basement. Yeah. Yeah. So Chisel and like, so his younger brother, Mike was my college best friend. And so he would tell me about DC. We'd go up to convergence records or we would go up to Nine Thirty or, yeah. and I, it was this feeling that I didn't know. I grew up in, in Vermont and like, I didn't know anything about cities even, but for there was this like political thing going on that you'd see. And then you'd see this music stuff. And I, I feel like growing up in that you're, you're always hearing about, politics Hmm. and did that did you feel that early on like growing up in that or was it this is just where i live i don't
1: know anything else i could answer that question both ways and they would both be true because i think on the one hand people who grew up in washington who are like true washingtonians or whatever have a bit of a um have a you know a bit of a chip on the shoulder about the city just being reduced to its you know functionality as like a political place because it's a it's a you're right the functionality yeah the functionality of the city kind of dictates the perception of the city and for people who grew up there that was a source of uh grievance i guess to some degree but also honestly more severely a racial blind spot because the town particularly when i was growing up was overwhelmingly black city that had the identifying marker being this you know government in a town where none of the people were citizens and could not i mean in the sense of being not they didn't have statehood. They couldn't vote. They had no, you know, they, they were weren't getting faxes, any benefits from They had from no any representation. Yeah, so there was an enormous kind of injustice baked into what the city itself is, right? And a lot of misperceptions about what goes on in the city. So, but at the same time, coming from Northwest DC, kind of middle class background, which a lot of the punk community came from, though not all. There were certainly lots of kids from you know all all strata of life, and certainly not. I think of Washington, of all the punk scenes probably in the country, was probably the most racially diverse because the city itself was majority black. So, and the signal DC punk band was of course the Bad Brains, who, who were you know basically the people who I think every single punk rock person who grew up in Washington in that era would cite as the number one most important group of the of that entire era. So, um, but it is also true that there was I think that there was a, an awareness of politics for a lot of the kids in the scene because quite frankly, their parents either worked in the government or if they didn't work in the government, they worked in some kind of academic position or they worked in some kind of journalistic position or they worked in some kind of, um, this is not by, I'm not, there's a broad brush, but a lot of the kids did come from that background. So that, that I do think there may have been an awareness of that kind of baked in on some level. But there was also plenty of kids who, whose parents worked in the service industries that service those people, and there was plenty of kids whose who right. whose families were from from other other strains.
0: But you're you're like you're
1: one or two degrees away from it. Yes, but it is true. Like you know, every kid, you just you know, at a, it just starts seeming like wallpaper after a while. You know, the Capitol, the White House, all this stuff. Like I personally had never been in the Library of Congress till like two or three years ago when wow. I went there, and I was like, how could I have lived here for so long <laughs> and never come <laughs> into this amazing building? You know, right. which is actually incredibly beautiful and super. Super interesting and has like, you know, just, you know, it, it was, but but at a certain point, it just was not particularly of interest when, when I was growing up, when there was so much more to explore. I mean, growing up in the seventies in Washington, in an era where parents were basically completely out to lunch in terms of what their kids were up to. I mean, from the age of like 11 on, I was just downtown exploring really? what was a very very rough and wild you take the metro in i would take a I, when i lived in the city so i was just like ride the bus oh downtown, right you just take the, then, like the bus yeah just ride the bus downtown we didn't have a metro when i first you know the metro didn't even exist at that point but i got a job very early in down in chinatown when i was like 11 12 years old at a comic book shop and and you know i remember seeing the cramps walking down the street and you know just You know, just being kind of out in the city in a way like going to kung fu movies on the weekends and, you know, uh, getting chased around and beaten up by people in the street. It was just a very different kind of the way I see the city from growing up in that time. I mean, I was all over the city. I would just go explore everything with, with, with my friends. And then when punk rock happened... And that kind of forced you, if you were going to go out to see these shows, like into all parts, you just, you know. Because those venues were all over. The first punk show I saw was 12 and a half years old. Wow. I was, by 13, 14, 15, I had seen The Clash, I had seen Patti Smith, I had seen The Cramps, I had seen all these groups. I just was out in it and I was like, so by the time I was 15 and started playing in bands and stuff like that, I had already felt, you know, like, you know, it would already become a big part of my my personal history. I've been taken, (laughs) fully taken, absolutely taken. Yes. And then uh,
0: why guitar? What did did that gravitate to originally? I think, or did you start with another instrument?
1: I didn't start with any instrument. And in fact, there was no real instruments in my, my dad had some harmonicas in the house, um, but there was no piano. There was no real musicality per se, but... I think for me, it really was this. I had an infatuation with the Beatles as a very, very young person that was bordering on obsessive, compulsive. Like, I remember there was this movie, the Sgt. Pepper's movie that came out where the Bee Gees played the Sgt. Pepper band and stuff. And I was so incensed, like, as an 11 year old, that we protested in front of the theater. Like, you know, it was like (laughs) free. I was a total freak for them and deeply identified with them and wanted to have some kind of experience in that. But at the same time, I had extremely low self-esteem in terms of a sense of my own musicality. So when I started playing in groups like bands at school where we'd play talent shows and stuff like that, they were um, for me more fundamentally just a way to make a lot of noise and be obnoxious in a certain way. Like I never had a sense of myself as being particularly a musician. I knew a few chords that I'd learned from a class I'd taken after school one day. I had some knew some basic uh, open chords and So like me and my friend Mike Hampton, who would later be in the SOA with Henry Rollins and The Faith and lots of amazing groups from Washington, we did a band in eighth grade called The Chains. And, you know, basically all I really remember is I kicked the drum set into the crowd. Like that was like the big (laughs) moment for me. And then (laughs) later I did a band called The Hostages with Brian Baker and Michael Hampton that we played a talent show. And again, that was just... Trying to be as offensive as possible, making fun of the Iranian hostage crisis and making a lot of noise. So I had this idea of of that I didn't really have any musical talent, and but I wanted to participate in some way. So I had a guitar, and I would kind of fuck around with it. But I I had very poor pitch. I couldn't really tune it. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and I think at a certain point, when I met, the, what really changed for me was when I met Brendan Candy, who was ended up being in pretty much every band that I was in. Um, and we started playing instruments together and something about the experience of writing with him and just being around him, uh, started to teach me more about how to play. And then once, you know, we started forming bands, I mean, the first band I was in was this band called Insurrection, which was, um not a very good band. And it was very heavily influenced by like discharge and venom and kind of this, you know, very abrasive music that we were listening to at that time, but we were not very sophisticated in delivering something mm-hmm. as cool as either of those bands. But that was kind of what we were into. Um, but I remember around the time I was doing that, I mean, I, I, I think I've told this story a few times, like Brian, I went to school with Brian Baker, who is the bass player and minor threat. And he had took me to one of their rehearsals after school and I watched them write screaming at a wall. And, the, and I just remember sitting against the wall watching them write this incredible masterpiece of hardcore, you know, where they were working out the breakdown and all this stuff and how serious they were talking about how to assemble a song. And it was, it was really eye-opening to me in the sense of, like, these are kids basically my own age, slightly older, who are doing something that is as good as anything around you know this is like you know it had been inspired by the bad brains but they were taking it to a different place and they were really serious and i was like it kind of informed me a little bit that maybe i could do something that had some value beyond just being kind of like a obnoxious obnoxious goof you know whatever right. it was and i so i think soon after that i think you know after the bands that came out af- from after that like right to spring and all the other groups that followed i think i started to have some kind of probably my facility of playing got better but I also had some kind of like sense of maybe trying to some kind of confidence crept into it once I started playing with people that I really identified with and that was really the guys in Rites of Spring those people that group of friends instilled something in me that I don't think I had had previously to that and then then I became much more serious about not I don't know that I've ever considered myself a musician but that I more serious about trying to do something on the guitar or trying to do something as a,
0: but watching someone, like you said, seeing Brian work out that song, you think, Oh, it's just a simple punk rock or hardcore song, but how serious it was noticing that, okay, I I
1: can do that. I I didn't have the feeling that I could do that. There was nothing simple about what they were doing. I, I, to this day, I think one of the great misconceptions about hardcore is that people think it was, it's actually one of the most difficult and like most, I can't think of another art form, period, that was created by young people that had an impact the way hardcore did. And the minimalism of it, the the I mean, the physicality of Jeff Nelson's drumming in Minor Threat. I mean, Brian Baker is a world-class musician, period, and he was from a very, very young age. He was always, like, we always look up to him, like, oh my God, that guy can really play guitar. He really can play guitar. Lyle, too. And the whole band was, like, very accomplished. The Bad Brains were ridiculously accomplished. They were amazing musicians. So this idea that somehow... Any of that stuff hardcore was, was like marginalized. easy or whatever. I mean, there's bad versions of it. Insurrection maybe was a bad version of a hardcore band. I got you. But there was bands that were as good as any band ever in terms of delivering this, this idea. Very quickly, in my opinion the air came out of the balloon that was that music and what was left was this kind of deflated saggy version of it and that was no longer very interesting but at its you know with bands like void with bands like the faith with bands like minor threat certainly the bad brains those groups to me i think that music is uh i don't think it needs any kind of like qualification in terms of what it is i think it's some of the greatest music ever made that's you know it's what i came out of and it's what i um, what really inspired me. And I, but I still look back at it in wonder I listened to the void record or the void faith split record in wonder. I just think it's amazing record that young people somehow made this, you know, absolutely Crazy music that right. is like so powerful So
0: I mean that's interesting that The, the music that stands the Test of time or music that lives on mm. And partly it's the music but it's Also the the stewardship Of it or like being the mm. you Know having everything and we talked about That I think before when we met sort of about mm. The archival part of like having Having the artwork or having the music Done right or doing it the right way First right and I think that's Partly why some of these things are remembered On top of it being amazing
1: it's true, and but quite honestly, there's also a, a converse to that, which is that there's many things that maybe only get experienced and don't ever get archived in that way that are still of great value. Yes, and they, in the memory of the people who were there. Like I was in a band called Happy Go Licky, which was to me one of the most interesting bands that I was in. We never made a record, a proper record. I think that band was. For people in Washington, it was a very, very important group, but most people in the country have, like, even the few people who have any idea of me as a musician or whatever don't really know that group, or if they hear the live record that we put out, it doesn't have much valence to them or whatever. I know for the people who were there that it was, you know, that it, and for me personally just having been involved in it. So there's, you know, I, I, I see it both ways. It's awesome when things are documented. It's awesome when people have the forethought. Quite honestly, I was not that person at that age. I... In Righteous Spring, all those groups, I could have given a fuck about anyone who wasn't in the room at the show. I just never thought about it. I had no, I had zero kind of forethought or ambition or imagination to think of it as anything beyond a very, very limited um, kind of, uh, you know, phenomenon that. Sometimes didn't even like Rice of Spring played for almost a year and a half without ever playing a show. We just played practices and wrecked shit. And to me, it was totally I I was satisfied. I wasn't kind of like, you know, geez, we should, you know, everyone in the earth should know what we're doing. I didn't really care. I just was there was no there was no concept that, that anyone would ever care or that there was any reason for anyone to care. But I cared. And that was enough at the well, time. Well, the,
0: the, the band cared. You cared about playing with the, your friends and yeah. wanting to make that noise. Yeah. What about Brendan was easy? What did you connect with him?
1: It's funny. Like, we have a tape of the very, very first time he came to our house, my house. And we we immediately formed a group called the Black Light Panthers. And we We had a metal globe that he was using as a drum, and we took some stole some drumsticks from my brother's room because he would had some in his closet and I played guitar, and we did this ninety minutes of just improvisational nonsense it's one of the worst things you could possibly hear, but it's very <laughs> funny to him and I, but I would never want anyone to hear it but um, there's this great moment where the door gets kicked in and my brother comes and is like, give me back my fucking drumsticks, you know? And it's like, it's incredible. <laughs> it's all on the tape. It's all there. It's all there. And, um, and it's kind of like the birth of our friendship, but so much of it was humor. And he's just, a uh, Brendan, I mean, he's just one of the most musically sophisticated people. Like his dad was a jazz piano player a little bit. And so Brendan had a, had this background with piano. Brendan just is very musical person. And, and, but, but beyond that, he's a, he's a, he's an enthusiastic person and a supportive person. And that combination doesn't actually often happen that much in groups where you have someone who has all this facility, but at the same time is like psyched on what you're doing. So right. he was, had this enormous kind of like, it was like a weird feed, feedback loop between us because I was kind of, uh, I was kind of me- I was kind of a messed up kid at that time, and it, for whatever reasons, but he brought out some kind of socialization of me that really changed my life. So wow, yeah.
0: So in terms of just your your development as a person,
1: oh, just yeah, just being yeah, absolutely amazing. And being someone who would be someone you might want to hang around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, he was a great great friend and a great great person to do all the groups with, and he was very loyal and he was very hardworking, which were the two components that saw us through to make it to. Fugazi, you know, right. and he joined Fugazi first. And if he hadn't joined first, there's no way on earth I would have ever been in that band. He pulled me into the orbit of it. You wow, know, through the you know the basically through the gravity of our friendship, just pulled me in. So that's what
0: happens. Yeah, no, but having those friends, I think it is the there's a deeper thing. Like there's the wanting to be with that person, and I think that yeah. helps in the music where it's there's and that a extended to, it's you know deeper. to Mike
1: Fellows and to Eddie and the right. that original lineup of we just. We were a very, very, you know, it was a, it was a very tight friendship and the, the, and the practices, the hangouts were, were, for us, were epic, you know, so it was, a, it was an epic feeling. Right.
0: What, f- finding that sound or mm-hmm. finding the band sound, what was that like when you got together and started to play together and figure out what you liked yeah. and that initial sound from that record that's, like I said, still talked about?
1: Um, with rights of Spring you mean specifically yeah it, well Eddie had been in The Faith and he had been mm-hmm. in The Untouchables and he'd been in like some really really great DC hardcore bands so and uh, Brendan had been in Deadline who were on the Flexurehead comp and Mike and I had been in insurrection with Brendan and so we all had kind of done stuff Eddie by far the most Mike had also been briefly in GI for a little while at kind of the same time he was in Rights of Spring but um, so the We just were initially getting together and jamming and writing stuff, which we did all the time anyway. Like we have, I mean, there were all these different groups. Uh, You get together and make a tape for an afternoon. It was just like, we just get together constantly writing and and goofing and and making stuff. And so we started writing some of these songs and Eddie started hanging out um, with us really regularly and we would just start playing and uh very quickly we just wrote a, a ton of songs and and not long after that mike was like i have to leave I'm, I'm moving to california and i was like what like we couldn't believe it we were like well what do you mean he's like no nah, i'm just i have to get out of here so he loaded up everything he owned to leave and right before that ian was like well you guys should probably make a tape you know just to, so you have some art you know some version of this which was really really uh which was kind of him to foot the bill because there was no idea that we were actually going to be, we hadn't played a show. So he took us in the studio and we made what we eventually released recently as the our first demo. And it was like, I think five or six songs. Six songs, yeah. And we interspersed all these other tapes, like tape collages of other groups that we'd done and things that we from our hangout. And tape was, you know, we, we put it together and then um, just kind of burned cassette copies for our friends and it kind of got around the city and people had heard it. But Mike, you know basically got in his car and drove across the country and was gone so we were like uh so eddie brendan and i just kept playing anyway because we were like well you know we had nothing else to do so we just he kept, had all those
0: songs yeah
1: i was still you know i think i just graduated out of high school at that point like that band started like right last year of high school first year of going to college or whatever so we didn't really know you know we just kind of kept the flame burning and then uh Sometime in 85, I was working my summer job and the door opens and my fellas just walked in. He had been on a bus and took a bus all the way back across the country. And then within a week, we played our first show. Wow. So it was this kind of thing. Like we sent him out, we mixed the tape and sent it out to him. He listened to it for all while. We were exchanging letters, but he didn't tell us he was coming back. So months went by and then one day he just showed up again. And then the band... So it's weird. In some ways, like people think, oh, we started in 85, but really we started at the end of 83, 84 and we'd been working on these songs. And then... There was Um, that delay, and there was that delay where people in Washington knew the songs because we had the demo out. So that actually made the first show kind of interesting. It's like people had been living with the songs for kind of a while in town. So when we played, they actually knew our stuff. Wow! So it was kind of an odd first show where you're playing to people who kind of almost have like you know the primer for what you're doing, and very quickly you know people were stoked and we were stoked and we just started writing more and more songs. And when Mike came back, it was just like someone had just you know injected us with speed. We were so jacked up and we just started. You know, ultimately, we only played 19 shows total. Only three of them were outside of D.C. So it was... Uh, and it kind of, you know, it kind of burned out very quickly. Like, it went from being just, like, ecstatic, jacked-up shows, and we made the record, which was, you know, we recorded that in, I think, 10 hours, maybe. Just... And we didn't even take it seriously. That's the thing, is, like, we just plugged... So I turn off all the lights, turn on the strobe light, and we just basically played what was our show, <laughs> and you know just did it sort of live except right. for the vocals, and we just kind of so there was lots of like, but I think it kind of gives it this energy or whatever. It was just like the way that we were playing live, and so there was a lot of improvisation and fucking around and just kind of it was raw. You know, it's a very it's a, it's about as raw a record I think as you can get, I guess, um, and it was done very very quickly, and uh, but it was hard to figure out when it kind of fell apart it's like it it went it went from being great to just being weird in literally one show like our last show was the only show we ever played where it didn't feel awesome it was just like something was messed up and we tried to record what became our the seven inch the ep that came out afterwards and we just did a very perverse versions of the songs like where the songs live had been you know sort of on par more with the record, though maybe more sophisticated in some way, but then we went in the studio and did this kind of very neutered version of them, and we were really not happy with it, and I didn't feel comfortable with it really, and we didn't put it out, and the band broke up, and it kind of all just kind of fell apart. But we just kept cycling around each other and reforming in different ways over the next series of bands. One Last Wish was sort of the same band with Michael Hampton joining, and then that fell apart and then we reformed right Spring exactly the same members as Happy Go Licky and took it into a very different place but it was predicated on the same kind of like intuition of friendship and playing with each other and and then it and then that fell apart kind of in a similar way. So <laughs> that's just kind of what it's like when you're like a young, you know, teenage right there's only teenage band members. It's like there's only so much you can do to kind of corral that kind of people at that age it's just such a volatile time you know so right and then the,
0: the the sound that was referred to then what were people calling right to spring
1: i think we were called a like post
0: like a hardcore band
1: yeah because no one had there was no such post of anything i mean i think really more like a punk rock band i think hardcore though hardcore is probably yeah i mean in 84 we probably still would have thought ourselves as a dc hardcore band and oddly i don't think we thought of ourselves as you know, I think we thought of ourselves in this kind of the same lineage as like, you know, the faith and, right. you know, for me, you know, it's like, I, I was like, I hung around SOA a ton when they were, cause me and Mike Hampton were really great friends. And so, you know, Henry was the first person who ever said to me, like, you should be a singer in a band. And I was like, wow. wow. Okay. So it's like, kind of felt like, I felt like I was in this lineage of, you know, DC punk. Hardcore, yeah, yeah. Hardcore, so punk yeah. didn't, it didn't seem like It was, I mean, the only thing that made it different, I guess, is just, you know, that we were slightly older, you know, 17 years old or whatever. So it wasn't like 15, but um, I don't know. I don't know how to think about it otherwise. At the time, there was no sense that it was outside the bounds. Um, But other bands, you know, it's funny because at that point, bands were starting to change and the different groups and different people within the scene were kind of pursuing different avenues and maybe, you know... You know, like Brian Baker was doing Dag Nasty, which maybe at the time was considered more a classic, classicist version of the sound or whatever, versus what we were doing, which was maybe had more improvisation or more like noise or whatever. So there was like obviously different strains and people were starting to explore. It was less of a template and more exploratory within the scene, I think, and people were doing different things. So in that sense, I guess that we were doing our thing, but I still felt like we were connected to the people. Yeah, it was definitely. So... But at that, that whole like lineage
0: or connection to the sounds, like, I mean, everything's given a genre, everything's given a word, but there's like a, there's a community or a sort of a connections to it that, it, that I feel like it, it made sense. And everybody, you're right, was doing their own thing. Yes. It just, it was offshoots of, we got into hardcore and then we're going to try this. Or we're going to try this. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And it was very, you know, it was, it was very unselfconscious, you know, It was just like just playing what you liked and there was no strategy involved or anything right. like that. It yeah. Was it like, wasn't like you're sitting there wondering
0: like how to market. No, no, it was, this is what I need to play.
1: Right. When was the first time you heard
0: Rites of Spring be called emo or that use that term?
1: Do you remember? You know, I thought about this topic because of the, the name, name of, of your the show. show. So yeah, right. I figured, so I figured I would try to have a an answer for like, so I started thinking about it because in a way I kind of don't really, I was like, do I even know about the what the, the right. origins of this or what, what the whole deal is? If I'll give you the long answer or whatever that I think is, because I think my relationship with it has changed considerably over the years. Like, I don't think I heard it while we were still a group, but I don't know for, sh- I can't Guarantee that, but I don't think that I had ever heard the word used like that. Um, My understanding of it, and I could be totally wrong, is I think that it was a joke made by Brian, actually, of Dagnasty, who we'd played shows with and had been a really close friend of mine. But, you know, I think at that point, in, you know, whatever uh, the history of, you know, young men in the same scene. Like, I don't think we were, we kind of like, I'd been very, very close with him. And then, you know, as time went on, right. we were not not totally tight friends at that point. I think he, there may be, have been, you know, I think he was making a snide joke Taking a shot at our band for whatever reason, I think for a lot of people in Washington, the idea that Righteous Spring could be a good group or that I could personally have done something that was of interest was probably a bit of a shock for people <laughs> who had seen Insurrection or knew me personally. They were probably like, "This is odd." But so I think that when the band was like, you know, people were into it or whatever, had whatever modest uh, local success it had, I think maybe some people, you know, so 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 he took a shot at it in a joking way and called it emo or emo core or something like that. So I think. The origins of the word, as I understand it, came from like a dig at, at our group or whatever. Um I could be wrong, but that's what I've I've, right. I've I've come to think. So at the time, whenever I heard it, I think we'd already broken up by that point. Um, probably was in One Last Wish when I first heard it. And I remember thinking like, well, you know, because at the time, really, the only association with emo, this is going to sound ridiculous, was Emo Phillips, who was a comedian right. at the time. So. I thought of That's that. That's my Google then, alert. I usually yeah. get stuff about bands, and I get updates on, on EMO, Emo Phillips. Phillips. I'm sure. I'm sure because at the time that was the only thing. So right, but there was also this guy. I remember at the time thinking like, well, you know, it's not like Dag Nasty or Kraftwerk, You know, they're singing about like you know personal right. issues. Or, I mean, what's the exact difference? I'm not really sure. Except that we were maybe more, you know, our shows were more demonstrative and or something. I don't know. I actually I can't think of what the possible distinctions could be. Except that, you know, it was a it was a, it was a dig and. I will say this: Brian is one of the funniest, most sarcastic people. I I actually really love the guy, and I love I love his musicianship, and I love all the bands he's been in, and I have no beef about it. And I don't even think at the time I felt it as a particular. I just was kind of like, oh, that's, "Well, he's just it, cracking a joke." Yeah, it was just kind of a dick joke or whatever. I was kind of like, "All right, that's okay," but I never really thought about it. But right. then it, the legs on this thing are so bizarre that it's it's like so the mic, so I think like I didn't you know I kind of thought about it. Oh, it's a diss, and then I washed off my back, and then. The years went by, and then many, many years went by, and then I entered the second stage of my relationship with it, which is one of total bafflement, you know, of, like, not understanding. Like, What years was that? This would be, like, I don't know, because it kept getting invoked over and over again. So I, was, I think it, I, you know, into, like, I think it kind of died, I think, around the, I don't remember hearing that much about it in, like, 89 or something. But then in, certainly once Fugazi started playing, the word bands were getting associated with. And some groups were, like, tagging themselves that quite quite you know deliberately as if it was a thing i'm like wow this is bizarre this is a weird way to think about it because i'm not saying that i am actually jesus christ but like if jesus christ was to come back to earth right and look at what is done in the name of christianity he would be like hey look these are some people at the border helping these refugees like i recognize this and then you would go and see like some evangelicals like blessing trump and he'd be like what the hell is this shit so that's like I don't know if I'm the Jesus of emo or the John the Baptist or the Prophet Isaiah or what what my lineage is supposed to be in relation to this thing. I don't actually understand it. But so my feeling a little bit is one of bafflement. Like what has been built on the backs of this odd snide joke? You know, like I don't understand when you it. were seventeen. When I was, yeah. So or the was, when you're making that stuff when you were that age. And I I frankly don't see the lineage. I don't understand it. I don't see the connection. But. Now I've entered my third stage of thinking about it, and I've come to kind of a different thinking about it. And and it's really because of this article I read about um, kids in Mexico who identified themselves as emo. I mean, it's an international phenomenon. There's kids 1000%. in Indonesia. There's kids in Mexico. There's kids in South America. There's kids it's from Singapore that hit yes. me up and say, I just found out about X, Y, Z. I've learned it. Like they, Yes. They're in. and. They may, I would say probably most of them, the great majority might have no idea who I am, might have no idea who writes a Spring War, might have no idea of any band that I've been in, but they identify in this way. And some of these kids are targeted. In Mexico, these kids were being beaten up. In Russia, like, beaten up, like, you know, considered. A lot of it has to do with homophobia. A lot of it has to do with misogyny. And now my feeling is I stand with those kids because I feel like those kids are the kids who are like, I like art or I'm a sensitive kid and I represent this way, or I just think this gender stuff is bullshit. Or, And those are the kids who kind of get into this thing and who tag themselves deliberately with this word. And at this point, I, I've gone from feeling this kind of like weirdness about it to kind of feeling like there's something about it that has continued to connect with people for some weird reason yeah. that it has nothing to do with me. It has. I don't believe that it has that much to do with me. I don't believe that I'm like the Jesus Christ of this or the originator in any way. But I do think there's some kind of commonality that is not clear to me that still exists. And I kind of feel like at this point in my life, I've started to feel like I stand with those kids because I feel like those kids are, a lot of them are victimized in weird ways. And I mean, you know, there's things about aspects of it or aspects of the bands that are related to it that you could find laughable or I could take critical shots at. I mean, I don't, I don't really know that much of the music and I don't, it's not necessarily really on my radar that much, but it doesn't matter anymore to me now because now it's like this weird, other freaky phenomenon that's occurred. And I no longer feel that connected to it, but I also no longer feel that disdainful of it because it's just some, it's just a weird phenomenon, you know? And I feel, I do feel that there's something positive in kids who identify with it and are out of a sense of like, connecting with, you know, whatever vulnerable sides of their humanity are or whatever, right. where it's not just like this, because in a weird way, I've, I've resisted this idea that Righteous Spring was a rejection of hardcore, a rejection of the violence in the scene. I've often rejected that kind of uh, narrative because I don't really, at the time, I just wanted to be in a band and have a good band and I whatever. But it is true that at a certain point, hardcore started being f- really stupid and the misogyny of it became even more laden and the ways that I'd participated in that misogyny became shameful to me and I was like this is you know this the violence of this is stupid like when I was young and first getting into punk rock grown men would get out of their cars and beat us in the street you know it's like I remember walking with Chris Bald and Brendan and a bunch of kids the station wagon pulls up 40 year old men get out and just tear Chris's shirt off his body and start punching us in the face and we would have... There was this kind of violence at shows where Marines would fight you. So the initial violence of the scene was defensive. It was like, we're going to band together as scrawny 14, 15, 16-year-olds and fight back. And it really, at the time, it was very important for me to learn how to fight back. Um, fight back at school, fight... You know, I mean, there was this kid at school who was always dogging me. He was older than me. One day, I just punched him in the face and started, like, gnawing on his leg like, a, like it was a turkey. And, you know, I just, like, fought back and I kind of, like it was really to me that that violence felt somehow like a progression for me in some way to kind of get, you know, to, to get through it. But at a certain point it reversed itself and became just like tough guys beating up, you know, weaker people or just dominating it and pushing women to the side. And the whole thing started to feel really like jacked up and stupid. So I feel like whatever, whatever, you know, what, if people see Right to Spring or whatever I was involved in as a reaction against that, then I, I'm fine with that. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm actually f- totally cool with that because right. <laughs> that stuff's dumb. I think that's where a
0: lot, sometimes post hardcore came about, like where it wasn't the fast like like hardcore and like people beating stuff out was like no we're gonna
1: chill a little bit and sing and not have to be right. going crazy the whole time i love the end i mean the thing about it is like i can i can distinguish between like right spring was a pretty aggressive band live and it was pretty like over the top like in terms of his presentation and stuff like that. i'm cool with that like i i get that energy i had i mean even in into fugazi and like whatever i always had a like just this you know, adrenaline surge from performing. I get all of that f- stuff, you know, but there's a difference between that and just being, you know, um, it just was weird to see somehow the jock aspect of everything become like the template, you know, it's just bizarre to me. Like I just could never, you know, it's, it's just very odd. So anyway, that's my th- long answer to that. No, question. I love I that, that answer.
0: No, it totally makes sense. Cause I think there's this cycle, you know, of like, they figure it out, it gets popular, and then it kind of goes away for a little bit. And mm-hmm. I think punk has that. I think all these genres, for some reason, emo has, it's still alive. And whatever form it turns into, if it's the pop era, which was the mid-2000s, when it was on TV, it was on the radio, and, and then it went away for a little bit, and then it comes back again, and slowly there's people that understand the history or know that it's longer than just
1: you know And your know, point of years. entry determines a lot right. of how you think about something. Like with punk rock, like I remember like when I really, I started listening to Sex Pistols and very early on, like I'd would heard i been reading about them. I was like very, you know, challenged by the idea of it. And then very soon after, like, you know, 1978, 79, you had these post-punk bands and they'd all be in interviews saying things like, we're not a punk band and like disdaining the term. And I'd just gotten my head around the term. So I was kind of like, how could they be like, to, doesn't everyone want to be like, punk rock is fucking amazing. Like, why would anyone say that they're not a punk band? Like, I just couldn't understand it. But it's like in the, But then it's funny, like in terms of the emo thing, I remember for a long time just being like, I don't know what this is. Like, why would anyone say anything I have to do that has anything to do with this word? It's just it has no meaning to me. But um, and I mean, honestly, it doesn't really have any meaning to me. Like, I don't I can't I can't follow the thread of it. I find it perplexing. I just don't get it. But I'm not. I'm not in that mode that where I was before where I just felt kind of like, you know, uh, scandalized or whatever. I don't really feel scandalized by it anymore. It just seems to me to be an odd quirk of culture, which is what it is. You right. Know? And um,
0: I think it's an offshoot of hardcore. It's those same kids that are trying to figure out their day and right. what's going on and how do I survive and what's going on. And I want to talk about it. And they're finding that this is that little pocket. And it, the sound
1: could change. The sound could morph. Right. But it's still that same kid. I think it's amazing how it encompasses things that are, like, as commercially huge as any kind of pop music. Right. And then, like, the most obscure kind of underground, you know, Screamo noise or something. thing yeah. that could possibly be. I mean, that's... I, it that's that is such an expanse that it almost makes you wonder if the word has any meaning at all i have no idea if it yeah. does but it's interesting to me that there's that someone could somehow find some way to connect all those dots i don't know how they do it right. but but it's being done but that's the thing i thought was interesting is that ultimately there is a connection that someone understands and that is like internationally understood in a way that is like that is that is strange that is just a very strange thing.
0: I think there's a there's a there's a tension, there's a there's a moment of something might go wrong in the song, not necessarily the pop stuff, which mm. was more I think just pop songs that happen to have screaming or they're, mm. like, I think that's looser than there's a moment at a hardcore show or there's this person pouring out this song and it's like the it might be the last thing they do. Right like that's how it felt, right, where that to me was this is uh there's 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 no tomorrow there is this is this is all that matters right now,
1: right, but I think I need to also step back and also say I think there is an aspect like everything with emo that's kind of broy there was like a there there is a i think quite appropriate uh, kind of feminist critique of a lot of the stuff where it's like, you know, my male anguish is so supreme and you're, you're a fucking bitch who has broken my heart and all this kind of that, like that critique I think is, is, (laughs) is very on point because it's, it's sort of ridiculous. I mean that, so there isn't, there is also, so even though I was kind of defending the idea of it, of it, um, you know, with, when it gets targeted in, in some ways, I think there's also aspects of it that are, are negative and do need to be called into question. So, um, it's just a complex phenomenon. It really is. It is. And it's, it has, it's crazy uh,
0: that it's still alive. Yeah. I thought it was dead. I thought there was like no one, like I used my, the first name of my website when I made it up, the tagline was, uh, um, I remember when I searched emo on the internet and nothing came up. Mm. Like it, nothing would come up. Like right. you would search it and it would be zero things and there wouldn't be things about bands that I thought, you know, people should be talking about if it was right of spring or if it was sunny day, well, real estate. When yeah. was
1: the first time you heard the word referred to as a genre? I was at a hardcore
0: show and a friend said, Hey, if you like this, you should check out X. And it was sunny day. They mm. mentioned mineral. They mentioned rights of spring. They kind of, they gave me this laundry
1: list. What
0: year would that have been? This was mid nineties. Huh? That's interesting. Okay. But it was, it, it I, i took it as where did this start what are the connections and i i I really dove into it of like what makes these bands that are sound different all connect Mm. and that's where i got the euphoria from or the the tension from i liked the the feeling that this might not be here tomorrow that's what i always kind of felt like i need Mm. to be in the moment and it wasn't about sadness and that's the thing that took over later it was about being sad or cutting yourself or right, right, you right. know suicide. I was like, I don't ever feel suicide. Ever listen to these bands? Right, this right, is right. like my fa- it's my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> you know, it wasn't sad to me. So that's what killed right. me. Thinking people thought it was sad right. when if you listen to rights or you listen to these bands. Yes, you might have broken up with a girl or a guy or there's some issue going on at home, but it wasn't. It wasn't like this is all about sadness. Mm. So that's what. I got out of it early on of like, this didn't feel to me that it needed to be just the because if you ask 10 people right now in Times Square, what emo is, they're first going to laugh. They're going to, they're going to giggle because their perception is the haircut or the pants or what they saw on MTV, not the full history or they obviously have no idea. So it's, 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 it's marginalized kind of like, I feel like punk was, like or hardcore, like oh, it's simple. Right. It's three chords. Like there's nothing to it, and so that's where um, the 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 word sort of morphs. Which yeah. is I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's which which wild.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was. Really I, I guess I, I overexplained it, but I it's more of the 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 word itself has lost its way. And I think there's certain pockets that understand the lineage, and just just to know it, it doesn't need to make sense. Just know that there were but these. See, I almost pieces. don't even know if
1: the lineage matters that much. Because really? It's like, yeah, because I don't because I don't I don't understand the lineage, so to me it seems insignificant because I don't pay any attention to it because I just it never never occurs to me to think about it ever. I never think about it. I never thought about it in terms of making those bands or through as the years have gone on. It just is. It's been like kind of weird static in the back of my head. I never think about it. I don't really care about it. But I do think what I think is interesting is that regardless of the lineage, if no one knows who the hell I am, no one knows the lineage of the bands or where it all came from, any of that, it still has some meaning. That's what's so bizarre to me that it's like, why? It's know, still alive. Like it's this little it's, a little, it's not psychobilly. You know what I mean? Like, right. it's like these different little like cult genres or whatever. It's it's a fuck of a lot bigger than psychobilly, And I don't know why that would be, but it is, you know? And so it's like, you know, it's bigger than, um, it's just bizarre. Like, it's just, I, so I think of it more in terms of, with a sense of bafflement and wonder, as opposed to any kind of, uh, Ownership. Got you. I, have I know no what you ownership mean. on it. Right. Just to me, it's like it has no. Um,
0: I love the three stage that you kind of mentioned. The, yeah. No idea. So you got to be kidding me. To yeah. let me think about this again.
1: Yeah. And the reappraisal <laughs> because I have to reappraise it because it's like here I am at the you know the age I am discussing it in a way you know it's like right. if you told me this when I was eighteen years old that this discussion would be happening in these surroundings. I would, you know, I would think you were like on LSD. I would have no idea what you were talking about because it just seems utterly weird. You know, Um, it's the genre itself is interesting where I don't know if another one's been
0: raked through the coals or misunderstood more like punk. You can think punk or new wave or uh, shoegaze like it's. You can instantly sort of think but about it. But see, I'm it, not
1: embarrassed about the band either. That's the other thing. It's like, yeah, I made the I started writing those songs when I was seventeen years old, and I don't think most people look back at themselves at seventeen and be like, I hope people are privy to my seventeen year old self for the rest of their lives. It's an odd thing in one way, but I'm proud of the band. I think the band was, you know, uh I'm I'm a little surprised maybe that people still get the record or whatever. It seems that seems surprising to me. But I think at the time, I mean, it was uh it was it was deeply felt, you know for real, right. like we were like we were like we were we were we were, we were, we were stoked and trying to make a good band and I my only real regrets around the whole thing was like I kind of wish in some weird way I could go back it to myself and say like, try to get it together and go on tour, you know, like just to, if I could have just told myself, you know, like to try to like expand you can you you because i don't think i actually had the belief that i could tour or be if i had some idea that i could have done because i do think if the band had toured maybe if the the four of us could have stuck it together longer i i'm i my regret i guess is that the four of us didn't get to continue to make music after happy galicki like when that band broke up i was very distraught i was just like man this is like i i just basically had this it just felt like an abyss. I was just like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do now. I didn't have any. I, I kind of I sold my amp to Tim Kerr from the big boys. I sold him my beautiful 64 Vox amp for like 250 bucks. I just got rid of my stuff and I got on a bus wow. and I just left town and I went, I got on a bus, ended up in Texas. I worked in a pumpkin patch, like selling some pumpkins, met up with some friends, drove around the country. And during this time, Brennan had joined Fugazi. I came back to DC with no place to live. Wow. No job. I was out of school, had no band. I just really was at a complete loss. You know, I was just like, I don't know what, you know, I was 21 and a half years old, 21, something like that. And I just was like, were you done school? Yeah. I was just everything. I'd lost the house that I was living in, the, the group house that had had broken up. I just, it was this kind of colossal feeling of like, I'm at the cliff of some kind of adult existence that I have no interest in and no preparation for. And I am not really a musician and I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And I, you know, Brendan's now playing with these guys and I don't know what to do. So I was in a, I only joined playing with Fugazi because I was basically at the end of my rope. Like I had nothing I could fucking do. And I didn't, I didn't really even understand how it could be in the band because they already seemed kind of fully formed without me, and I just was just kind of in a, felt like an appendage, and I was felt, you know, it was a very weird mindset. And it took uh, probably until we made the Repeater record where I really felt like uh, some co-ownership. of Wow, the it took that long. Well, because I wasn't playing guitar at the beginning, right? So I was just you know singing and being Flavor Flav and like going off and right. doing this stuff, which was great and fun, but I didn't feel like it was. I never really had my feet settled, you know, and Brendan kept saying like, you know, just stick it out. We're going to, you know, and then eventually they, you know, the, the generosity of Ian and Joe to kind of, you know, keep that door and that space open for me within the group was enormous. And, and, and I think I was still kind of in a, you know, just a very weird frame of mind, like, but I eventually, obviously to my, you know, great happiness, like found my footing in the group and, um, was with people who, the, the defining trait of that band was like the kind of uh, s- s- work ethic of it was like it it matched the energy that I wanted to put into something, and I was ready for that to happen. So that's that was I mean, yeah. the work put into those tours and yeah, the I record mean, it, it, it cycles 20 years were like it was. Uh, you can't use the record cycles with me, man, because we never that, that <laughs> Sorry, is, I'm at work. I know you're work. I'm at work. That is just I know, it's so cheesy, but like the We, we cycled on
0: nothing. Nothing The only thing we did t- was No, actually, that's really interesting, because I talk about people I the We will get to I talk about no cycle, because an artist is an artist, but they're so conditioned to, there's an album, and then two years go by, and then they go away, and then they... Like, but
1: that is now... There was no connection. We toured for two years... like not two years. We toured for almost a full year with no record. I mean, we just like learned how to be a band together by going and touring all of Europe and all of the United States with no record. And then we made a record, and we couldn't make a full one, so we just put out the f- seven songs that sort of sounded okay, and then we did that again, and then... I mean, the, the whole thing was like... I Did it feel fluid? Because did you feel... Like there was a
0: cycle, meaning like, you know how like you, the, the holidays are coming up, you know, and you know that you got to do this, this and this and this or even the week. You know, I got to go to the grocery store on Fridays. No,
1: like there no. wasn't a. The one thing I think Ian and I, Ian and I have most in common is that we don't look further than like 12 hours. Actually, he told me about that. He was like, totally hundred percent agree with him. He does the work. Like his whole thing is like, I do the work that's on my plate and that's exactly the way I have never projected anything. And that's why it was, you know, uh, it's just like, I've often felt like just being a musician, the whole thing is like some kind of a weird, has a dream flow to it it's just like you just do the one thing the next thing i didn't think you know it's like with fugazi it's like i wasn't even sure at the beginning i was going to be in it for the you know much longer i just wasn't sure what i was doing i was like really out of my head and then a few years went by and we started the band started we just kept playing and the thing progressed and the in communication and intuition with the group developed and then it just, we just kept expanding it. And people are, you know, think there was some grand strategy or that we had some kind of, you know, it's like, I'm proud of the fact that a fully independent, self-managed group did the things that we did. But I also don't believe that it it's, was notable beyond what anyone could do. It's just that most people somehow don't happen to do it or whatever. I mean, the band... We're putting the work in. It, it's just putting the work in, but also just just not... Allowing someone else's template on top of what you're doing, and that's the key to everything. I think in terms of if you're going to be a musician, or you're going to be an artist, or you're just going to be a human being on the earth, like you build your own template to suit the way you are in the world. We're, I'm a freak. Everyone else in the fucking band are freaks. Why would some fucking template that worked for you know Foghat fit on top of what we're doing? It's, just, it's not possible. You know, it has no fucking relevance. And we amassed our simply by saying no to any template that didn't match what we did and to say this in the halls of Atlantic I'll just to talk about major labels and the rest of it I think a lot of people confused our position about major labels and the groups that were signing that we were somehow in antagonism with that kind of thing it's, a, it's different. I think what we were was protective of what we were doing. I think one of the fundamental things that happens to people sometimes when they give power away to, of, of their art is they become alienated from the thing that they make. And if they're actually sensitive people or creative people, that alienation where they see a reflection of what they're doing that has been mutated... It drives them into a suicidal despair, and I mean those words literally, into a suicidal despair because they don't recognize anymore the thing that has been most important to them. No one gets to the point where they're going to be signed by a major label if they haven't invested something very deep within themselves in what they're doing. So it's like, if you get to that point, but then you feel that you have to, in some way, surrender some kind of vision of it. And I'm not saying everyone who's obviously not everyone who's signed to a major label has been driven into a suicidal despair. It's not true. But I mean, certainly some people have had healthy working relationships with the people and somehow it lines up with what their artistry is. Totally fine with me. I just, I just felt like within our group, we knew the fragile aspects of what we were doing and we knew how easily they could be disrupted and we were protective of it. And that's it.
0: I really like that, that you were kind of not, beat your own drummer if there's a better term of like this felt right now we're gonna do this and what led that to it wasn't like you were thinking three steps
1: ahead you couldn't and because the thing was changing so fast right and we were having to redevelop what we were doing constantly it's like we went from playing you know some kids basement in you know madison or something like that to like you know 15 people to within you know four or five years we're playing to like 5,000 people on multiple nights in in big cities it's like it was just it was exponentially growing it was outpacing us in a very intense way. I will say towards the end of the group, we were running against the limits of what we could do in some sense. But my personal feeling is that we could have, could have figured it out and we could have found some imaginative way to keep the group going. I find the, the end of the group, in my opinion, it was a weird uh, circumstantial blip that, you know, derailed the group in a way that maybe didn't need to necessarily be derailed. I don't think, I do think I've always remained confident that the four of us could have figured some way, to always navigate because we'd made it through a very a very you compare 1987 to where we ended up in 2003 when the band stopped playing the terrain was like you know it was, it was nuts like you know we predated nirvana by quite a, a bit but then we went through that whole shenanigans and then on to like you know whatever happened after that so um yeah i don't know it's it's uh that i mean that like you said that we got on this thing
0: about that cycle and like the trajectory mm. i love that that that's i think it either reminded me or that there are these templates that are out there and i think it's i i reject a lot of them cuz i think you can always be doing something or whatever feels what you're up to or what worked for that band isn't going to work for this one it needs to be right for you right and I think you guys taking that approach would be like, oh, we have songs, let's go record. Oh, let's, hey, you want to go on tour? Let's go on
1: tour. Yeah. And, and but you know, it's and, funny, and that's I'm, okay. Now I'm starting to even interrogate my own opinion because I think a lot of younger musicians now they use these kind of words in ways I'm sometimes like I, cause I come out of this, you know, punk rock DIY background or whatever. So sometimes I see young groups and the way they talk at this very sophisticated ways, cause they're forced into marketing themselves on social media platforms and all this stuff that I'm not on. So I don't know anything about it really, but I, I hear the way that they talk and the words that they use and stuff. And sometimes I'm kind of not judgmental, but I'm just like, I just feel kind of like, Whoa, where? how did they, are these like did they get degrees in marketing? Like, how do they know all this stuff? Like, or how do they speak this way? But they do it very unselfconsciously. And I'm not saying that they're not like still as fully invested in what they're doing, but they're trying to make a path in this environment of whatever this is. So it's like, I'm not, I, I always try to be very careful. Like I'm not insulting anyone. I'm not judgmental of what anyone, I'm just talking about my own experience of where I came from and what my, my, you know, the road that I went down was, and I, I find a lot of it like, A lot of times I get people ask me for advice and, you know, like, you know, I, can you transmit the lessons of what we did to the, to this environment in a way I do think you can, because there's not, there's something fundamental about play with people who like who you like and are respectful and cool to you. That just seems obvious. And like associate yourself with people who you can, you would, you don't mind representing you in the world that you don't make you feel sick to your stomach. That just seems like kind of a universal, you know, it's like. So I think a lot of it makes sense, but I'm not saying that I fully understand the nuts and bolts of how it is that musicians make a living now. And I've never, I guess I never really thought of it in terms of a career when we were doing it. It was always like, you know, because when we started out, we were all working jobs. And you So know, you, how long did you have a job? Probably like the first four or five years of the band. And then
0: you were, okay, it was, it was sustaining. You could.
1: The first four or five years I was living in a, a group house. I mean, I was, you know, the entire time I was in Fugazi, I lived in a group house paying $250 for my room. No one had to to pay a cell phone bill or anything. I mean, all you had to pay was utilities and $250 and you'd find someone to sublet your room when you were on tour. And I lived that way for like 15, 20 years or whatever. It just was the way it was. At the beginning, I would work. I worked in movie theaters. I worked in record stores. I worked in washing dishes. I worked in, you know, restaurants. I worked in bookstores. I worked, you know, I just, you know, then you go on tour and you come back you pick up another job. You know, that way of living was totally, I was so happy. I never had this feeling of like, when are we going to make it? Or when can I give us like, I was so happy that to live in a group house, have a little studio outside my room where I could record my friends, could go on tour around the world and play to people. The whole thing was just like an unbelievable gravy train as far as I'm concerned. Like it just was like ruling. And then at a certain point it was like, we were working so hard. We were touring six, seven months a year that there was no real way to keep a job. So it was, and they, I didn't really need that much money anyway. And the band, you know, our margins were very tight because we were doing $5 shows and our records were $5 cheaper than everyone else's records. So it's not its not that like we were making a bazillion dollars, but at a certain point, just the scale of it was enough to be like, shit, we're making some fucking money. And then, you know, um, I mean, you know, Honestly, if we'd merchandise ourselves and make T-shirts and the rest of it, I could be a quadrillionaire, you know, it'd be like exponentially huge. But what we made was like in any scheme of any band of our contemporaries in Washington, we were like fucking living like kings, you know, it was like totally we were doing really well. And we were able to put that money back into, you know, building a small little studio and recording groups and supporting what was happening in Washington and bringing our friends bands out and the the younger kids learning how to tour and do stuff in the wake of what we were doing. The whole thing was self perpetuating and self, uh, sustaining and awesome, you know? And
0: you were happy and were you, when were you producing bands
1: yet then? I started producing bands when I was still in Fugazi. Yeah. And that was really just because, you know, like a band like the makeup want to make a tape and they don't have that much money. So they would come and I would try to, you know, I, I boasted of no engineering skills or no schooling in it, but I just learned on the equipment that Fugazi had bought. We'd bought like a little 8-track reel-to-reel, and I had a tape deck, so I started working with bands and then Blonde Redhead and developed a really long relationship with that group, and uh, and that led me to The Gossip, and that led me to uh, um, Blood Brothers and all these other groups that I've worked with over the years. And, um, and since Fugazi stopped playing, I mean some of the most important musical relationships in my life, particularly to Vic Chesnut, who was someone I was in a band with for a few years and made a couple of records with. And for me was the experience after Fugazi that was the most important in in my life and, uh, and played with him until he passed away. Um, a lot of that was, uh, you know, through, yeah, through that kind of thing.
0: What did you like about producing versus... What I like about producing
1: is insinuating yourself into a group in a collaborative way. Um, Like, I don't have the ethic of the idea that I'm just an engineer. Like, my thing is, like, I, I actually like the feeling of, like, Integrating yourself into what the group is doing trying to understand what they're doing and then trying to help them articulate in some way So like when I worked with blonde redhead It was really like feeling like oh man I'm like I get to be this auxiliary member of the group for a while and work with them and develop stuff and uh, Work on arrangements like right now I work a lot with this band Zylorus white which is Jim white from the dirty three and George Zylorus from Crete who plays the lute and you know, the three of us get together and work on arrangements and record hundreds of songs and edit them down and work on them. It's like this kind of like, it's an opportunity to participate in. I love groups. I love, love groups. I love collaboration. And it's a way to do that kind of vicariously without actually being fully inside the group. So it's a way, you know, for me, I can't I never wanted to do anything in my life but to be in a band. So like when I'm not in a band, like the second best thing I can think of is to kind of insinuate yourself into a group dynamic like that and work in that way and that's what I've been able to do. And I I've generally worked just with people who's, you know, I feel like close to in some musical sense or some personal sense or or in some kind of fellow traveler sense and I feel incredibly lucky that that's that's been able to happen, you know. And so that that that's
0: what's taking up your
1: time, yeah. other than family so and on, life like, and stuff. Right now, I just like last month, I was working with this band, The Casual Dots, who are an incredible group, uh, with Christina from Slant Six and Kathy from Bikini Kill and Steve Dore. It's a trio. I've been working on a record for them, and uh, Zyloris White is an ongoing musical thing. Whenever they're in town, we record, and that just is an ongoing thing. And so yeah, most of the, and I still make music on my own. You know, I still. I still make music every day. So that's, it's just like, you know, is that, is that something you try to do? I, I don't ever, try to t- do it. I, yeah, I just have to do it. Or That's do, what I was about or, to say. Yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to do it. Yeah. It's just, I just play. And I mean, I, I thought quite honestly, I thought Fugazi would break up and immediately I'd be in a band again because I was in five bands back-to-back back non-stop so since the age of like 15 I was just <laughs> in a group band. and broke up and then I was in a new band within a week and then I just would do a new band within so I kind of expected that to happen again and it, it never really did until I met Vic and then when he passed away it hasn't happened really since I mean I do do perform with people there's like different you know I've done some film music collaborations with a friend of mine Jim Cohen who made the Fugazi film mm-hmm. like we've ha- I've had some Some kind of we've created like kind of musical accompaniments for movies and done different things, but you know, for me, like the idea of being in a a group like that worked in the way that Fugazi was. I mean, that has always been to me like the dream, and life has gotten more complicated to make that and for whatever random reasons, it hasn't quite lined up for that to happen again. But um, but that to me is like kind of like the uber existence of that. I think since the age of nine years old, I've always seen that as being the ideal state, you know, like, and I've always been any group that I was in, I've always been like, you know, I often think about the army. It's like, that's why they send kids at that age into the army because you're like, I'm willing to put, you know, I'm put me in the trenches or whatever. I've always felt like that was my vibe within a group. Like, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to serve and spray this machine gun everywhere. That's the way, you know, (laughs) that's kind of the way I feel about it. So, and Fugazi was like that. He's like, we were all in the trench together and it was awesome. You know, it's like, I just, I love that. And a common goal. Yeah. Common goal. And, and you have to hash stuff out and stuff gets ugly and you work it out and you, you know, there's like, that's, you know, the bond with the, all of the people in the bands that I've been in, you know, I talk to those people all the time. It's like, it's like, it's not a, it's not some kind of like incidental, aspect of my life it's like you know the 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 family that i was born into and with a time delay you know that's the way i think about it that was perfect okay cool
0: thank you